the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Sam Moppin Engineering, and we're glad to have you with us. We'll be talking with Joni Militich. She is with Prep for Kids, the Portland um, release time education opportunity that's shaping kids' hearts for life, giving them access to biblical instruction in the middle of the workday. Well, the school day for them. Anyway, there are opportunities to partner, to enroll, or to give, and we'll talk more about that with her in the second hour of today's program. Also referencing a popular singer who regrets her abortion experience and felt that she was led by the Holy Spirit to make that public. Uh, she was a part of the Pussycat Dolls um, group. And uh, as we anticipate the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that's coming up next Sunday, We'll share a little bit of her story. Also next week, we'll be talking with pro-life ministry leaders uh, in the Portland and uh, Washington, Southwest Washington areas. That's coming up next week on the program. Today, of course, is Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday celebration. It is now a national holiday. And throughout the program, I'll be making some uh, references to quotes that he made throughout his public life. The first being faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. He didn't see it, but he was faithful to the ministry and his calling to the end. We are going to be broadcasting live on Monday from Mission Connection. This year is at Sunset Church, and we would love to invite you to join us. This is a free event Friday night and all day Saturday, but you do need to register. Uh, Friday and Saturday will be at the church. In fact, we'll broadcast from four to six there in the, uh, the lobby at Sunset Church. The theme this year is Here I Am. What next? You can learn about mission work, how you can become uh, more involved, how you can clarify your calling and so on. There'll be workshops and exhibits, speakers and more. Uh, plus, as I mentioned, we'll be broadcasting live from four to six and I have the opportunity to MC the rest of the weekend. Again, admission is free, but you do have to register online. You can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. And I hope to see you there. And if you are there, please come up to the booth and say hello, preferably when we're not actually on the air during one of the breaks. Well, in 1983, Republican President Ronald Reagan signed the bill to make the third Monday in January a holiday in honor of Baptist pastor Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who was born January 15, 1929. He was a Baptist preacher like his brother, Reverend A.D. King, pastor of Mount Vernon First Baptist Church in Noonan, Georgia, and like his father, Reverend Daddy King, Martin Luther King Jr., I should say Martin Luther King Sr., who is pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Reverend King attended Booker T. Washington High School in Atlanta from 42 to 44. In 1944, he attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, the college founded after the Civil War by Baptist minister Reverend William Jefferson White. And originally named Atlanta Baptist College, it was renamed after um, Henry Lyman Morehouse, secretary of the American Baptist Home Mission Society. At Morehouse, King was a member of the debate team, student council, glee club, uh, sociology club, and minister's union. 
1948, he became a student at Crozier Theological Seminary in Upland, Pennsylvania. He graduated with a Bachelor's of Divinity degree in 1951. While a theological student, he attended Calvary um, Baptist Church in Chester, Pennsylvania. In 1954, he became pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. In 1960, he became co-pastor with his father of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. King formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He stated, I see Israel as one of the great outposts of democracy in the world, as a marvelous example of what can be done, how desert land can be transformed into an oasis of brotherhood and democracy, end quote. Peace for Israel means security, and that security must be a reality. I solemnly pledge to do my utmost to uphold the fair name of the Jews. Reverend King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. In his acceptance speech in Oslo, Norway, he acknowledged at that time profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to crucial political and moral question of our time, the need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. On the 16th of April, 1963, he wrote, As the Apostle Paul carried the gospel of Jesus Christ, so am I compelled to carry the gospel. One day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., as well as South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu, were influenced by the German church leader Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted Hitler's National Socialist Workers' Party. Bonhoeffer was himself influenced by the black preacher Adam Clayton Powell, Sr., pastor of Harlem's Abyssinian Baptist Church, once the largest Protestant church in America. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was also influenced by Henry David Thoreau, who wrote in his book, In Civil Disobedience, 1849, that government is best which governs least. Reverend King was influenced by Booker T. Washington, having attended the high school named for him. Booker T. Washington founded Tuskegee Institute in Alabama and wrote up from up from slavery in 1901, in which he stated, I resolved that I would permit no man, no matter what his color might be, to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. With God's help, I believe that I have completely rid myself of any ill feeling toward the southern white man for any wrong that he may have inflicted upon me. Upon my race, I pity from the bottom of my heart any individual who is so unfortunate as to get into the habit of holding race prejudice. He also stated the wisest among my race understand that the agitation of questions of social equity is the extremist folly In the sight of God. There is no color line and we want to cultivate a spirit that will make uh, make us forget that there is such a line anyway. I have always had the greatest respect for the work of the Salvation Army, especially because I have noted that it draws no color line in religion. Booker T. Washington wrote in Up From Slavery in 1901, There is a class of race problem solvers who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. They don't want the patient to get well. Great men cultivate love. Only little men cherish a spirit of hatred. He recruited George Washington Carver to be a professor at Tuskegee. And Carver wrote of Robert Johnson, 19, I uh, should say, um, March 24th, 1925. Thank God I love humanity. Complexion doesn't interest me in the single bit. 
George Washington Carter, uh, Carter rather, wrote to YMCA official Jack Boyd in Denver of uh, March of 1927, keep your hand in that uh, in that of the master, walk daily by his side, so that you may lead others into the realms of true happiness, where a religion of hate, which poisons both body and soul, will be unknown, having in its place the golden rule way, which is the Jesus way of life, will reign supreme. Becoming internationally renowned, George Washington Carver received letters from leaders around the world, including Mahatma Gandhi, with whom he corresponded from 1929 to 1935, addressing him, my beloved friend, Mr. Gandhi. We'll continue in just a few moments on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Joni Militich. She's with Prep for Kids. We'll bring you the latest post um, pandemic and the impact that has had and what's happening with the ministry today, how you might come alongside and help. We've been talking about Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And some of his influences, I mentioned that George Washington Carver was among them. He received letters from leaders around the world, including Mahatma Gandhi, with whom he corresponded for a number of years. Gandhi's insistence on nonviolent protests helped India gain its independence from Great Britain in 1947. The United Nations designated Gandhi's birthday, the 2nd of October, as International Nonviolence Day. He wrote in his autobiography of an incident on a ship with 800 passengers traveling from India to the uh, Natal province in South Africa, uh, Africa rather, uh, with some uh, when some passengers learned that Gandhi was aboard. They grew furious as he was disembarking. They punched him, kicked him, threw stones at him, but he refused to retaliate and kept walking. He was finally rescued when his wife of the town, when the wife of the town's police superintendent opened her parasol and stood between him and the mob of it. uh, The event, Gandhi wrote, I hope God will give me the courage and the sense to forgive them and to refrain from bringing them to law. I have no anger against them. I am only sorry for their ignorance and their narrowness. I know that they sincerely believe that they are uh, what they are doing today is right and proper. I have no reason, therefore, to be angry with them. End quote. Well, he'd read the Gospels, starting with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it went straight to his heart, he says. While practicing law in South Africa in 1893 to 1914, he went to visit a church, but the usher refused to let him in because of his race. Needless to say, it didn't leave a good taste in his mouth. Well, later, missionary E. Stanley Jones asked him, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to uh, so adamantly reject becoming his follower? Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike him. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today, end quote. Historian Will Durant wrote of Gandhi in the story of civilization. He did not mouth um, the uh, name of Christ, but acted as if he accepted every word of the Sermon on the Mount. Not since St. Francis of Assisi has any uh, life known to known in history been so marked by gentleness, uh, disinterestedness, simplicity and forgiveness of enemies. Gandhi was assassinated, as you might know, in 1948. His nonviolent methods influenced Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who referred to Gandhi as the guiding light of our technique of nonviolent social change. Reverend King left on a five-week tour of India in February of 59. He met uh, Prime Minister Nehru, and he 
toured the country. Afterwards, the king reflected, since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of nonviolent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe. And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. The king wrote Mahatma Gandhi was the first person in human history to lift the ethic of Jesus Christ above mere interaction between individuals and make it into a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan mentioned Reverend King in his remarks at the annual convention of the National Association of Evangelicals meeting at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Columbus, Ohio. During the civil rights struggle of the 50s and early 60s, millions worked for equality in the United States. Uh, Civil rights leader like Dr. Martin Luther King based all their efforts on the claim that black or white, each of us is a child of God, and they stirred our nation to the very depths of its soul. In 1957, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King attended the Billy Graham crusade in New York City. Graham wrote in his autobiography, One night, civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King, whom I am pleased to count a friend, gave an eloquent opening prayer at the service. He also came at my invitation to one of our team retreats during the crusade to help us understand the racial situation in America more fully. Becoming friends, Billy Graham shared a conversation with Reverend King. His father, who is called Big Mike, called him Little Mike. He asked me to call him just plain Mike. Reverend King credited Billy Graham with reducing racial tension as Graham even canceled a 1964 tour of Europe to preach crusades in Alabama, allowing the gospel to bring healing between the races. Billy Graham stated, Jesus was not a white man. He was not a black man. He came from that part of the world that touches Africa and Asia and Europe. Christianity is not a white man's religion. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's a white or black Christ belongs Uh, white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. Billy Graham wrote, my study of the Bible leads me eventually to the conclusion that not only was racial inequality wrong, but Christians especially should demonstrate love toward all peoples. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, had it not been for the ministry of my good friend, Dr. Billy Graham, my work in civil rights movement would not have been as successful as it has been. On January of 1997, Uh, Billy Graham delivered the invocation just prior to the second inauguration of President Bill Clinton, stating, Oh, Lord, help us to be reconciled first to you and secondly to each other. May Dr. Martin Luther King's dream finally come true for all of us. Help us to learn our courtesy to our fellow countrymen that comes from the one who taught us that whatever you want me to do for you, do to you, do also to them. In proclaiming 1990, the International Year of the Bible, reading, um, President George Herbert Walker Bush stated the historic speeches of Abraham Lincoln and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. provide compelling evidence of the role scripture played in shaping the struggle against slavery and discrimination. On February 16th in 2002, Dr. James Dobson addressed some 3,500 attendees at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in which he says those of you who do feel that the church has no responsibility in the cultural area Suppose it were 1963 and Martin Luther King is sitting in the Birmingham jail and he is released and he goes to a church. Yes, a church. And from that church comes out into the streets of Birmingham and marches for civil rights. Do you suppose that is that a violation of the separation of church and state? 
In his address in Montgomery, Alabama, December 31st, 1955, Martin Luther King declared, If you will protest courageously and yet with dignity and Christian love, when the history books are written in future generations, the historians will have, a, have to pause and say, There lived a great people, a black people who injected new meaning and dignity into the veins of civilization. End quote. Dr. King said in August of 1963, now is the time to open the doors of opportunity to all of God's children. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred, which overflows today. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to denigrate into physical violence. On April 16, 1963, Reverend King wrote, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency. The other is a force of um, that foments hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. I've tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need uh, em- we uh, need to emulate neither the do-nothingism or the complacent, nor the hatred of the black nationalist, for there is more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. He proclaimed in August of 1963, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slaveholders will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their their character. I have a dream where little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls and walk together as sisters and brothers. It's so interesting to me in the 21st century that we are moving away from that ideal and into something that runs counter to what Dr. Martin Luther King espoused and gave his life for. I hope that we'll be reminded of his ideal and return to that nonviolent equality that he advocated to the very last. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. A quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, they tell us that um, today is Blue Monday. Blue Monday. It's calculated using a series of factors and a formula, although it's not particularly scientific. The factors used uh, to base the uh, date of Blue Monday include weather conditions, debt level, and the fact that we are just this side of Christmas and the uh, resolutions you may or may not have made have, well, they've 
already failed. It usually falls on the third Monday of January every year. The purported day of gloom this year is today. This is when, according to the formula, people will be most affected by the bleak winter weather, post-Christmas come down, and being filled with guilt over failed New Year's uh, resolutions that have already slipped. Therefore, they're most likely to feel sad or depressed. Now, for those of us who don't base our uh, feelings on these kinds of circumstances, it may not be a deal, but apparently that's true for a lot of people in our uh, culture. So be nice to folks today. They're, they might be feeling bad, and it's an opportunity to tell them how they could feel a whole lot better, not just today, but in the days ahead. Well, President Biden's counsel discovered five additional pages with classified markings at the president's Wilmington, Delaware home this week. Special counsel Richard Sauber said uh, he said that after uh, the president's personal attorney discovered one classified document at his home on Wednesday, they ended their search because they didn't have the uh, appropriate security clearance to view the materials. Because I have a security clearance, went to the Wilmington uh, home on Thursday evening to facilitate providing the uh, the documents the president personal counsel found on Wednesday uh, while I was transferring it to the Department of Justice officials who accompanied me five additional pages with classification markings were discovered among the material with it for a total of six pages. The Department of Justice officials uh, took possession of them. A set of classified records from the uh, uh, president's time as vice president were first recovered by his lawyer on the 2nd of November at the Palm Biden or rather Penn Biden Center, a think tank that served as his private office from 2017 to 2019, where he was just a private citizen after his time as vice president came to an end. The White House counsel's office then searched Biden's home in Delaware through this week and discovered a small number of additional Obama-Biden administrative records with classified markings, the vast majority of which were found in a storage space in Biden's Wilmington excuse me, garage. The Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the appointment of a special counsel on Thursday to investigate the handling of these classified documents. Democrat leaders in the House and Senate left uh, colleague Representative Adam Schiff the Democrat from California hanging today as they remained silent on whether they supported his call for an intelligence assessment concerning the classified documents that were mishandled by the vice president, the former vice president. I don't think we can exclude the possibility without knowing more of the facts, Schiff said, speaking on ABC this week on Sunday. We have asked for an assessment in the intelligence community of the Mar-a-Lago documents. I think we ought to get the same assessment of the documents found in the Penn Biden Center, as well as the home of the former vice president. I'd like to know what these documents were. I'd like to know what the special counsel's assessment is, whether there was any risk of exposure and what the harm would be and whether any mitigation needs to be done, Schiff said. I think that we would uh, be uh, appropriate and consistent with what we requested in the case of Mar-a-Lago. Well, sadly, Democrats um, have jumped to defend the president but have not uh, insisted on the same level of oversight. The list of uh, Democrats for whom uh, that have been reached out to included Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority uh, Whip Dick Durbin, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and House Minority Whip Catherine Clark, none of whom were willing to speak. Uh, They jumped to defend the president over the mishandling of the documents, with many arguing there are differences between the situation surrounding his documents and that of Trump's. The one similarity is he did not have the authority to have those documents. 
We'll continue to follow that story. We also learned House Republicans are demanding to know who visited the president's Wilmington, Delaware home over the roughly five-year period in which classified documents were sitting in the garage. But no records detailing comings and goings at the uh, property exist, according to the White House Counsel's Office. Representative James Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, sent a letter to the White House chief of staff on Sunday demanding visitor logs for his private residence in light of the news that a trove of, that might be something of an overstatement, a trove of Obama administration classified documents were discovered in the garage. Given the serious national security implications, the White House must provide the Wilmington residence visitor log without a list of individuals who have visited his residence. The American people will never know who had access to these highly sensitive documents. Well, the Secret Service confirmed that despite posting a security detail to the Delaware residence, no visitor records um, were kept. We don't independently maintain our own visitor logs because it's a private residence, according to the agency. The White House Counsel's Office pushed back on Comer's request in a Monday statement, pointing out that it's not standard practice to keep visitor logs for private residences. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Well, the San Francisco Advisory Committee has recommended paying out hefty reparations to the city's uh, longtime uh, black residents, including a $5 million payment per qualifying person and a supplemental income to low-income residents for 250 years. The city's African-American Reparations Advisory Committee released a draft report last month claiming that San Francisco's international reputation as a shining progressive gem in the West is undermined by its legacy of mistreatment, violence toward and targeted racism against black Americans. San Francisco was never a slave-holding area, but apparently discrimination was rampant. While neither San Francisco nor California formally adopted the institution of chattel slavery, the values of segregation, white supremacy, and systematic repression and exclusion of black people were legally codified and enforced, the group wrote. As such, the committee proposed the city make a uh, lump sum payment of $5 million to black residents who are at least 18 and have identified as black or African-American on public documents for at least 10 years. Residents must also meet at least two of eight other requirements. Among those requirements is that the resident is personally or the direct descendant of someone incarcerated by the failed war on drugs. So this is not slavery, but the war on drugs or is a descendant of someone enslaved through U.S. chattel slavery before 1865. A lump sum payment would compensate the affected population for the decades of harms that they have experienced and will redress the economic and uh, and opportunity losses that black San Franciscans have endured collectively as a result of both intentional decisions and unintended harms uh, perpetuated by the city's policy. The group also suggested that the city supplement lower income recipients incomes to meet the area median income of about $97,000 for at least 250 years. I'm not sure where San Francisco would get the budget to carry that out, but this is the recommendation that has been made. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Joni Militich. She's with Prep for Kids, the Portland Release Time education program that's shaping kids' hearts by bringing Christian education, biblical teaching during the the, uh, school week. We'll talk more with her in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, as President Joe Biden is rumored to soon announce a 2024 bid for re-election, the developing investigation into several batches of classified documents found in his possession could cause turmoil for a potential campaign. Well, last week, news broke of three sets of classified documents found at Penn Biden Center and at two separate locations at the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware. On Saturday, White House Special Counsel Richard Sauber revealed that five additional pages of classified materials were found at Biden's home on Thursday when attorneys with security clearance went to the location. Warning there could be contaminated crops. Farmers are warning migrants pose a threat to the nation's food supply. Alveda King reminds my uncle believed deeply in the promise of the American dream. We could make it happen. The Supreme Court will hear an immigration case brought by a transgender woman against the Biden administration. And breaking point, New York City Mayor Eric Adams on Sunday called on the federal government to play a bigger role in addressing the migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border that is overwhelming city officials. The Democratic mayor was in El Paso this weekend to survey the border and meet with his counterparts to discuss how the crisis is impacting the community. Weinstein's best PR person, controversial NBC president Noah Oppenheim, he quietly exited his division and was given a vague new gig last week, more than five years after he was largely blamed for refusing to expose since disgraced Hollywood mogul Harry Weinstein as a predator. Oppenheim famously told Ronan Farrell that his Weinstein reporting wasn't up to snuff, so Farrell took it to The New Yorker where it won the Pulitzer Prize and helped launch the Me Too movement. Saying it shouldn't be taken seriously, squad member Ilhan Omar is glad the special counsel has been appointed over President Biden's classified documents. Going to be lovely, a great-grandmother goes viral on TikTok for her thoughts on life and death. Imagine that, an elder having something to say to the younger generation. Trey Gowdy points out that many media outlets are downplaying the president's classified documents debacle. And Mark Levin says either the National Archives lied through its teeth or it hasn't kept track of classified documents from the Obama era. Additional classified documents have been found. Republicans favor McCarthy as speaker. According to National Review, a majority of Republicans support Kevin McCarthy's election to the House speakership. Despite the chaos surrounding his speakership race, 59 percent of Republicans approve of his election. Twenty one percent disapprove. Though McCarthy only recently became speaker of the House, 42 percent of Republicans approve of how he's handling his position so far. Just one in eight or 12 percent disapprove of how he's handled the role in the few days he's held it. Christian colleges won a, a court one in court where Title IX uh, threatened to remove funding. Christian colleges won a major victory in court this week when a federal judge dismissed a lawsuit that threatened the school's federal funding. In April of 21, a group of LGBT students sued the U.S. Department of Education for exempting the Christian colleges from non-discrimination rules. The lawsuit included personal statements from students at universities such as Baylor. The students described how colleges disciplined or expelled them for not abiding by standards of um, for biblical sexuality, standards rooted in the school's religious beliefs. Title IX, the Civil Rights Act, forbids sex-based discrimination in education, but colleges upholding traditional definitions for marriage and sexuality can request exemptions that allow them to adhere to scriptural beliefs on matters of sexuality. The Supreme Court plans to revisit racial preferences in college admissions. The Supreme Court is revisiting the issue in higher education. The last time it did so, in 2016, it upheld them 
by a 4-3 vote. All three dissenters are still on the court, along with three new conservative colleagues. In this term's cases involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina, students for fair admissions asked the justices to hold the racial preference violate Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and when practiced by public institutions, the 14th Amendment. Common expectation is that they will do so and definitively overturn 45 years of precedence permitting colleges and universities to discriminate in the interest of achieving the educational benefits of a diverse student body. Iraqi Prime Minister al-Sudani defended the U.S. troops' presence in the country. Iraqi Prime Minister uh, defended uh, the um, U.S. presence and set no uh, timetable for their withdrawal, signaling a less confrontational posture toward Washington early in his term than his uh, Iran-backed political allies have taken. Until now, Mr. Sudani had been publicly silent about his views on keeping U.S. forces in Iraq, saying only that they would consult Iraqi commanders. Some Iranian uh, mil- uh, militia leaders and Mr. Sudani's supporters in parliament are pressing him to reconsider the U.S. presence. This has left Biden administration officials unsure about the future of around 2,000 American troops in Iraq and a separate multinational training force under NATO command. A Florida judge has allowed Ron DeSantis' um, Stop Woke Act to remain in place. The federal judge ruled that the Florida governor did not violate a court order regarding the state's Stop Woke Act, which prohibits colleges from promoting critical race theory lessons and targets other woke concepts prevalent on higher education campuses. According to a survey of 20,000 students across 55 colleges, there is a liberal bias within higher education. 50% of college students identified as liberal compared to 26% who are conservative. Former NBA player Ennis Cantor Freedom makes Turkey's terrorist list for criticizing the country's human rights practices. The former NBA player, a native of Turkey, is on the country's most wanted terrorist list for his comments about the government's human rights abuses. Turkish President Erdogan's government is offering up to 10 million Turkish lira, or about $500,000, for information leading to his capture, Freedom told the New York Post. Freedom is a longtime critic of Erdogan, calling him a dictator and the Hitler of our century. Freedom expressed support for the coup attempt against Erdogan in 2016 and was later banned from the country as a result. The death toll has reached 29 in the Russian missile strike on a Ukrainian apartment building. According to the Associated Press, the death toll from the Russian missile strike of an apartment building in the southeastern Ukrainian city of uh, Nippur rose to 29 on Sunday, the regional governor reported as rescue workers scrambled to pull survivors from the rubble. Russia also targeted the capital, Kiev, and the northeastern city of Kharkiv on Saturday, ending a two-week lull in the airstrikes it has launched against Ukraine's powerful infrastructure and urban centers almost weekly since October. Horrifying images have emerged. 68 people are confirmed dead in a plane crash in Nepal. CNN reports that at least 68 people were killed Sunday when an aircraft went down near the city of Pokhara in central Nepal. A government official said the country's deadliest plane crash in more than 30 years. 72 people 
Four crew members and 68 passengers were on board the ATR-72 plane operated by Nepal's Yeti Airlines when it crashed. Yeti Airlines spokesperson said 37 were men, 25 women, three were children, and three were infants. Nepal's Civil Aviation Authority reported a deadly plane crash killed at least 68. Rescuers are searching for survivors. Men are undergoing vasectomies to oppose overturning Roe v. Wade. Rather than taking responsibility, liberal men are getting vasectomies in record numbers to protest abortion bans across the country in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Now, is that really a protest or is that just self-interest? Reports of increased numbers have been coming in over the last six months following the summer ruling from the Supreme Court. In fact, reports began surfacing after Texas became the first state to successfully ban abortions in late 2021. They offer a form of permanent birth control for men, and roughly 500,000 are performed every year in the United States. President Biden comes after uh, pistol braces and the latest move infringing on America's Second Amendment rights. The Biden administration announced a new Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives rule. (coughs) Excuse me. Banning pistol stabilizing braces. The ATF's new rule asserts that a stabilizing brace effectively turns a pistol into a rifle and is therefore regarded as an illegal short barrel firearm. The new rule requires any pistols with attached stabilizing braces to be registered within 120 days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, a conversation with Joni Militich with Prep for Kids. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Joni Militich. She is with the Prep for Kids, the Portland Release Time uh, Bible Education, Shaping Kids' Hearts. And we're going to talk with her about the status of this ministry and how you can come alongside and help. And there are a number of ways to do that. We'd also like to encourage you to enroll if you have youngsters Either sons, daughters, grandkids, um, neighborhood kids will fill you in on all the important details as well as how to reach them uh, should you want to follow up. Also want to remind you coming up this Friday night and Saturday, Mission Connection 2023. This year, the theme is Here I Am. What next? You can learn more about the mission work that's going on all around the globe, how you can become involved, refine your calling. There'll be exhibitors and workshops, speakers, a lot going on uh, this weekend, and we hope you will join us. As is always the case, admission is free, but you do need to register online. You can start at kpdq.com, and we hope to see you there. We'll be broadcasting from 4 to 6 on Friday, so if you happen to be in the area, do stop by and say hello, preferably when we're off mic, but that's coming up this Friday and all day Saturday. Well, on Friday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent a letter to Congress and specifically to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, alerting that she was acting to take certain extraordinary measures to prevent the United States from defaulting on its obligations. She noted that the U.S. government would hit its debt limit this coming Thursday. That's three days from today and warned that it was critical that Congress act in a timely manner to increase or suspend the debt limit. Yellen was unable to estimate the length of time these emergency measures would allow the U.S. government to keep up its obligations, 
But failure to meet the government's obligations would cause irreparable harm to the U.S. economy, the livelihoods of all Americans and global financial stability, end quote. Raising the debt ceiling has been a regularly repeated crisis for lawmakers, wherein Democrats continually warn of catastrophic consequences should the debt limit not be raised. This time it's Social Security, Medicare and military salaries. And like clockwork, White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre insisted that Congress is going to need to raise the debt limit without condition. Well, she further asserted that there should be no negotiation over it. Well, in 2021, Congress raised the federal debt ceiling to $31.4 trillion. And thanks to uh, some in Washington and the spending spree we've most recently witnessed, that ceiling has been hit yet again. Meanwhile, Republicans have repeatedly called for government spending cuts with House Majority Leader Steve Scalise noting, at the same time you're dealing with a debt limit, you're also putting mechanisms in place so that you don't keep maxing it out because of if the limit gets raised, you don't go to the store the next day and just max it out again. You start figuring out how to control the spending problem, end quote. Indeed, Americans are currently suffering under a 40-year high inflation rate thanks to government overspending. The solution is simple, although not simple to implement, The federal government needs to stop spending money it doesn't have. Well, no visitor logs exist for the president's Wilmington home, the site of the classified documents discovery, at least one of the two sites White House counsel's office has confirmed. And Democrat Mayor Eric Adams is demanding action from President Biden after seeing the border crisis firsthand. Hunter Biden has asked a court to deny his estranged four-year-old daughter from taking his surname. The Trump administration has been fined $1.6 million for tax fraud, and Biden and the media taunt struggling Americans by insisting 6.5% inflation? Well, that's a good thing. On the road to zero, more states are phasing out the income tax, and the country's biggest school districts are explicitly hiding kids' gender transitions from their parents. China reports a huge rise in COVID deaths after the World Health Organization criticized Beijing for heavily undercounting. And the University of Alabama basketball player Darius Miles is among two charged with capital murder and the shooting death on the Strip. Well, Texas medical schools have been hit with a lawsuit for allegedly discriminating based on race, sex and nationality. Well, on this day in history, 27 B.C., Caesar Augustus, and no, I was not present at the time, although I may bear the uh, aging image. Uh, Caesar Augustus is declared the first emperor of the Roman Empire by the Senate. So on this day in here, we know the day and the year. That's pretty extraordinary. 1547, Ivan of Russia, better known as Ivan the Terrible, is crowned czar. 1865, Union Major General William T. Sherman He decrees that 400,000 acres of land in the South would be divided into 40-acre lots and given to former slaves. Well, that order, later revoked by President Andrew Johnson, is believed to have inspired the expression, 40 acres and a mule. 1920, prohibition begins in the United States as the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution takes effect one year to the day after its ratification. It would later be repealed by the 21st Amendment. 1978, NASA names 35 candidates to fly on the space shuttle, including Sally K. Ride, who would become America's first woman in space, and Guyon S. Bluford Jr., who would become America's first black astronaut. 
1991, the White House announces the start of Operation Desert Storm to drive Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. Allied forces would prevail in February of the same year, the 28th. 1992, officials of the government of El Salvador and rebel leaders sign a pact in Mexico City, ending 12 years of civil war that left around 75,000 people dead. 2003, the space shuttle Columbia blasts off for what turned out to be its last flight. On board is Israel's first astronaut, Ilan Roman. The mission would end in tragedy on the 1st of February when the shuttle broke up during its reentry descent, killing all seven crew members. 2007, Senator Barack Obama, the Democrat of Illinois, launches his presidential campaign. 2014, the Vatican is called to account for the global priest sex abuse scandal as U.N. experts in Geneva interrogate Holy See for eight hours about the scale of the abuse and what it was doing to prevent it. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, the U.S. Senate votes 72 to 26 for a $1.1 trillion government-wide spending bill, sending it to President Obama for his signature. And it continues. Well, coming up in the uh, next couple of segments, a conversation with Joni Militich. She is with Prep for Kids. It's a release time program that really has been around for a very very long time. And it gives uh, parents an opportunity uh, to have their children receive Bible instruction during the school week. We'll talk about why that's a good idea and whether or not it creates a uh, lag in education. You might be pleased to learn that it does not. In fact, it can be extremely helpful in terms of how a child is performing in school. She'll be joining us to talk about that. And then uh, a conversation about a, uh, a popular singer who is uh, felt led by the Holy Spirit to reveal her story in which she confesses to having had three abortions and what the the decision um, has done to her life. And she issues something of a warning to others who might be making a similar uh, consideration. Sunday, not, um, well, yeah, well, this coming Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday. And uh, we are going to, of course, focus on the sanctity of human life on that date. There's a March for Life coming up later in the month. We're going to spend some time next week talking with some of the pro-life leaders in our community in the wake of the overturn of Roe versus Wade, what that's meant in Oregon and Washington, and how the pro-life movement forges ahead. But first, a conversation with Joni Militich, Prep for Kids, Portland Release Time Education, Shaping Kids' Hearts for Life. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you've heard us talk about Prep for Kids here before. It's a nonprofit, non denominational Christian program for children attending public schools in the greater Portland area. They offer weekly Bible classes within um, release time education classes, and they teach a biblical worldview. We're here to talk with us about that and to get us up to date on how Prep for Kids is working here in the Portland metro area is Joni Militich, who's been associated with the uh, organization for a number of years. Joni, it's good to have you back. Thank you, Georgine. Good to talk with you today. Thanks. Well, I don't want to assume that our listeners have heard our conversations in the past, so I do want to start from the beginning. I mentioned okay. that PrEP is a non-denominational program for kids. Can you fill in some of the details about what PrEP for Kids is and how it was established here in this area and across the country? Okay, great. Um, yes, actually, by 1948, um, all 
48 states. We didn't have Alaska or Hawaii yet. We're practicing release time. And in the early 50s, the Supreme Court codified it to protect it and direct it. And in Oregon, actually, since 1931, students could be released for religious instruction um, during their academic schoolwork. Um, Our organization serves Multnomah and Washington and Clackamas counties, the tri-city area here. And we were established almost 40 years ago in um, 1984. So the guidelines that the Supreme Court has set down and that Oregon law has set down are four. One, parent permission. Uh, no No federal funds are received. We must meet off campus and during the school day. Um, The intent of the legislation really came from an understanding that once education had to be strictly secular, that there was going to be a lot of things taken out, uh, not shared, that didn't fit with that worldview across the content areas, um, and that a need for families to be able to uh, complete that for their kids with religious instruction during the fact teaching part of their week was really important for families. So what we do is coordinate parent interest in the classes. Usually Christian parents hear about our program, and they're the catalyst for inviting um, other families in the school. Usually our attendance is um, sometimes up to half, 50% of unchurched families that enroll their kids. Um, so our, our job as a ministry is to inform parents and then inform churches that are located nearby a school campus where parents have requested the program and we meet on the church site. And then we um, bring together and train volunteers from local churches. And um, those are the three prongs, a place to meet, um, parents that enroll their kids, and the volunteers. And sometimes that all grows out of one congregation that sees the vision of this and the outreach opportunity in their community. Um, And sometimes the church and the volunteers um, and the attending parents are all from um, various places in that local area that come together. It's so amazing considering that this is a an opportunity that is extended. And I would imagine some of our listeners are wondering why during school hours, now mm-hmm. kids are in school for more hours right. than they are virtually anything else. Why right. during school hours? And especially in a time when there's concern about uh, mm-hmm. the pandemic's impact on their academic achievement. Yes. Good question. Um, the law um, itself, uh, legislators felt like it was important for moral development Um, and the overall well-being of kids to have a spiritual track in their education. So it's interesting to me that it didn't, um, this law didn't come out of churches, but Mm -hmm. came out of legislatures um, that realized that we are spirit, not just material people. But um, the during the school day, I think, had two intents as I've studied it. One, they wanted this the nature of the class to be instruction. And during the school day, kids are not um, 
well, they, they come to the classes in a learning mindset, um, we're able to really structure um, a systematic Bible program that way um, that year-by-year year builds if they can stay in the program. So the nature of the class was one. It's not a club. It's um, a class. And secondly, they wanted everyone to be able to access it. And after school, there's transportation issues for many families um, that they knew would limit everybody having this equal right. The other thing we have discovered is that um, the schools themselves are now basically serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they have extensive after-school programs. And it's been for the last years very difficult to have an after-school program because they they have so much they are running and organizing they really don't need various outside groups renting rooms Mm -hmm. to have other things going on Um, so there's the cost after school Um, there's the fact that the intent of the law was to serve everyone and um, yeah so the, I, one other thing I would add to that, though, Georgine, is we've seen that um, uh, we we have the kids for one hour out of their 30-hour week, basically. And um, we had gone before COVID to largely holding those classes during lunch and the one recess after lunch. So there, there wasn't any missed work. Even for the schools that cleared a different time slot, we don't meet during core classes. And I think partly just because it's God's word we're talking about mm-hmm. here, um, there's been studies done, and we can verify those in our experience, that the kids that attend PrEP um, have a uh, settledness in behavior, and their academics usually in, improve. And... Um, so that's just, I think, some of the fruit of the God's spirit in their lives, bringing some stability and security there, even if they're kids that are just seeking and learning for the first time. Uh, we had one one school just a couple of years back, and when our team showed up to take the kids out for class, the school secretary said, well, you have another enrollee this week, a new permission slip, but we really don't think you should take this child because he's throwing furniture in his classroom. We haven't, he's not in control, and we just don't think you should take him to your Bible class. And our teachers said, oh, his, his parents have enrolled him. We're, we're going to give this a shot. And from day one, he um, was at peace and sat and learned every day he came out of the school for our classes. That's how he behaved. Um, you know, and there's no explanation for that except that the, the Lord's Spirit and His Word yes. are moving among these kids. And um, I believe that because it's in the academic um, framework for them, you know, for kids, facts live at school, and sometimes we struggle a bit helping them connect what happens at Sunday with their fact world, that God is, he's the central fact, he's the linchpin, and he's the one that really helps the pieces, the facts in life fit together. But um, when they are in a different environment that's largely now hostile to their faith, and then when they come for that hour um, under the, you know, the ministry of the Spirit and the Word, um, I believe they really um, resonate 
with this is the authority of that scripture. And the Spirit of God just has that immediate kind of light and dark contrast that's going on for them. Um, Because kids, you know, have a sense for authenticity, (laughs) and they pick up on things. And that one hour is really a powerful experience we've found. We're talking about prep for kids. It's a tremendous opportunity for families to um, have their kids get some instruction from the scriptures. And we'll continue our conversation with Joni Militich in just a moment. But we also want to let you know that we'll be giving you information on how to connect. If you'd like to volunteer, if you'd like to give all of that coming up when we return, you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joni Militich. She's with Prep for Kids. It's a Portland release time education program, and it's shaping kids' hearts for life. You have opportunity to partner with this ministry to enroll if you have kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, or neighbors you think would benefit, and of course they all will, and opportunities to give uh, as well. Now, Joni, tell me how um, the pandemic and the fact that children were isolated for a period of time, how has that impacted in all of the areas that we've been talking about, partnering, enrolling, and giving with Prep for Kids moving forward? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um I would say the words in our minds as we look toward next fall and what we're working out right now are next and new. Um, I, I know that all of us, whether it's our personal lives, our churches, other ministries, know that a lot changed as we have reemerged from um, COVID. And for us, um, the COVID protocols in the schools, as as people know, were one of the most extensive and long-term. So we have not been able to operate in-person classes. We couldn't take students on and off campus. They were kept in small cohorting groups that couldn't mix between the grades or the schools um, and other restrictions. So we moved to our um, a mailed a monthly mailed activity um, Bible activity packet, so the kids were getting personal mail. We tried to make it real hands on um, and get the scripture into their hands, remembering that in some of the homes there is no Bible, so um, we would make sure and have the scripture any scripture referred to was all there for them. And our volunteer teams did shepherding, and families could design that package. Did they want phone calls, birthday cards, drive-bys, when we were doing those drive-by in your vans and wave mm-hmm. at each other that, ses- that time? And then a lot of home visits developed as um, parents asked, just come into the house and visit with us and our kids. And our volunteers were having students play the piano for them and show them projects because that isolation um, had been so pronounced for them. So that's what we have been running. This is our third year of doing the mailed packets and the shepherding. We actually didn't get word of um, the release from those restrictions that would allow our program to function until this November. So that was obviously three months already into the school year. So we're continuing with the the mailings and the shepherding and are reconstituting, uh, wanting to reconstitute our teams toward this coming fall. So what is key to us is to now 
center our classes where the parents have spread into some of these other schools. Um, So we're asking the Lord to just confirm for us through the volunteers that come forward to reconstitute those teams and the parents who indicate interest, many of whom we know will be in new schools or new school formats, so that we can focus our classes when we reopen where people now are. Um, One example of a family we're serving this year, for our, I'll call it, third COVID year, um, they're in their third school in three years. Mm. So families are still moving about um, to try to find an educational format or location that works for them. So what we would like families listening to know is that we want to, we're trusting the Lord that we can broaden Um, where we go with our classes, and that would include not just the brick-and-mortar public schools or the public charter schools, but the online academies, the kids that are online all day long and could appreciate coming out for a class, Um, the hybrid academies where they're half in person and half at home, homeschooling, because most of these um, operations are not Christian organizations, Um, you know, we have that same mix that we love in our ministry of Christian families and unchurched families. And um, we have found that we have at least equal, if not greater, interest from these unchurched families, especially um, we're trusting the Lord for an increase again as we go back to classes because, the you know, we hear in the news frequently um, about the uh, mental health issues for children and the physical um, effects they've, they've suffered, um, a lot of depression, mm-hmm. um, a lot of substance problems and hospitalizations. And we really believe that as dark as curriculum has become in many of the schools and as oppressive as it can be, uh, especially for the Christian families that just have to be there, they, they are not always able to afford or do the homeschooling or these other schools that have waiting lists that go on and on. So they're there. And um, we just really believe that with the, the needs of the time that um, there can be a great response right now among families. And um, we know that the schools have... Uh, the public schools have lost many families. Mm-hmm. Um, our enrolled families that I've already said are a mix of churched and unchurched have spread many directions. So if you would take any 10 families that were in one of our classes at one school, they now represent about five different locations. <laughs> so wow. um, our appeal is tell you where, tell us where you are because you have a new network that you're just getting to know of parents and your, your children are just meeting new principals and new teachers and allow us to support your children there and be an outreach. Um, Because I think even the schools um, understand that um, the needs of their families and their kids are um, they're in over their heads. And aren't we all (laughs) without the Lord you know, um, bringing healing to some of this brokenness. So what's the best way for a family that's listening today um, to connect with 
prep for kids to enroll, to say, here we are, this is what we're hoping <laughs> to do. What's the best way for them to do that? Um, I would send, um, tell them they can call us, um, and our number is 503-281-7764. That's 503-281-7764. Or drop us an email at prep office, P-R-E-P office at gmail.com. Uh, they can learn more about us and download flyers um, and permission slips at prep for the number four kids dot org and learn more about us there. Um, we have if it's an individual, um, you can you can download material off the website or we can mail you um, flyers and tools um, that you can take to your church or share with other families if if someone's listening that is in church leadership, um, we really appreciate churches um, receiving materials from us that they can pass on to individuals. So individuals can share with their churches. Churches can share with the individuals. Um, just email us or give us a call, and we will get back to you. We've talked about enrolling, but what about those who would like to partner, who'd like to come alongside and provide uh, partnership. You need volunteers as well as those who would uh, help to support the work by giving. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say um, you can give online on our website, prepforkids.org, um, or use the phone number or the email to let us know about volunteering interest. Um, our uh, P.O. box is one two zero three four, and we're in Portland. Nine seven two one two. Yes, we'd welcome all of that, and we're just excited to see where the convergence, where the groups develop. We're going to be at Mission Connection at Sunset Presbyterian oh, this, this Friday and Saturday. We're booth seventy-two. Uh, we're the first room to the left off of the foyer, and we'd love to talk or um, put materials in your hand right there. Um, and answer more questions. Yes. Well, I look forward to seeing you at Mission Connection. Mm -hmm. One final question. How might we pray for you in the ministry? Mm. I think um, we would just appreciate prayer that we would know um, where the Lord wants us to move these classes next. Uh, We've been in Uh, you know, well over 100 schools. I don't have the exact count. And there's always a rhythm as families move through and volunteers are available, et cetera. So there's there's this, you know, movement that goes on. Um, But we want to be um, focused on the places where it's like uh, experiencing God gave us a language years ago. Uh, We want to see where God is working and join him there. Um, we cannot humanly um, track where people are, especially now in education with all the different formats. Um, we know that volunteers are needed in many ministries, and I would say the uniqueness of this one, besides it being Bible-centered, is um, that it does connect the church to the community 
um, where we cannot get the community into the church so often. So if that's your burden through evangelism and um, you have a heart for these kids that are being told to design their own truth, you know, that's basically asking these kids to be God. And they're not fooled. That's <laughs> tremendous confusion and tremendous pressure. So um, if your heart is for the elementary and middle school kids at this time, um, we would just ask you to reach out to us. And um, and then praying that we will follow where we see God moving, and that he will raise up the people who are called to this particular mission. Yes. Well, Joni, thank you so much for talking with us once again. I look forward to seeing you at Mission Connection. And once Mm, again, for folks who are interested in connecting, you can uh, call 503-281-7764, or you can go to uh, email at prepoffice at gmail.com. And I'll make sure this information is on our website as well. Thank you, Joni. We'll see you this weekend. Okay. Thanks, Georgine. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Went a little long. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. As you may know, next Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a recognition of a decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court some 50 years ago. It's since been overturned, and the chaos that has followed we're all very familiar with. I read with interest when Kaya Jones, she's a former singer for the Pussycat Dolls, said the abortions she had, and that's plural, when she was younger, still haunt her to this day. I was completely uh, um, enchained and bonded to the devil, she writes, and that's a direct quote. Jones told um, in an interview, the host of Students for Life Speak Out podcast, that she'd had three abortions before she turned her life around and started following Jesus. She explained how she had her first abortion as a teenager when her birth control medication failed. She recalled how she became pregnant again while in the group and was told to get rid of it. That's a direct quote. After having one abortion, she said it became easier to have another. At that point, because I had already gone through an abortion previously, I didn't think it was the big deal after all. Jones described growing up in an abusive music industry that left her with little self-esteem and led her to make poor choices. She said her third abortion happened after she was raped by an old boyfriend, even though uh, she wanted to keep the baby. She said she decided to terminate again due to stress and complications. After the first one, you don't think about... uh, You don't think you've done anything wrong. It's been normalized. And what is uh, a line until you've crossed it? You don't know what a line is. Once you've crossed that line, it's very slippery slope to continue to cross those lines, she recalled. But she said her conscience was triggered when she saw two little girls looking up at her during a concert after she had an abortion. Nothing on me in that moment said, caution, this is a lie, she recalled. There was nothing beautiful about me. I was tainted. I was destructive. I was uh, destroyed. I was completely enchained and bonded to the devil or the enemy or the realm of death, if you will, where I was living in my worst self. Joan said she understands the pain and anger some women go through, but warned them not to make the same choices she did. I've gone through it all, she says. I will assume you will regret it your whole life. Nothing. Even if I become a mother tomorrow and happily married and all is well, I'm still going to regret the three children I did not have, she said. Joan says she was compelled by the Holy Spirit to share her story about abortion regret. 
It's very painful. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of lack of knowledge. There's a lot of regret. And nothing can make that go away but God himself when you lay it at his feet and ask for salvation. Nothing can make that go away but God himself when you lay it at his feet and ask for salvation. The former singer also argued that abortion led to a breakdown in respect between men and women in the culture. What you're showing men is that you don't value yourself or your seed or their seed. And in return, they don't value us as women because we're willing to do these things to ourselves and to our children. Joan said she wasn't trying to take anyone's rights away, but she wanted to show other women who'd had abortions that there is healing and forgiveness. You can still be a mom. You can still fall in love. You can still be valued. You can leave that at the foot of the cross, she said. Well, I recall this uh, young woman's story because we are approaching a season in which there's going to be a lot of time and attention focused on the infamous Roe versus Wade decision and the fallout over a period of some 50 years, the abortions that have taken place, not only impacting women who've been directly involved in their own abortions, but men whose children have been aborted as well, either with or without their consent. Families who have been uh, broken by the fact that a family member chose abortion over parenting a child. The fact that there are medical professionals who at one point or perhaps still are involved in ending the lives of human children in utero. It's a difficult and painful season to those whose hearts are tender And I wanted to just remind you what this woman who has had three abortions said, nothing can take away the pain that she had experienced except God himself. She felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to share her story so that others who are experiencing similar pain might turn to him for relief. Next Sunday, as I mentioned, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, in which we recall the sanctity of human life and we celebrate it. But there are those who are among us who remain in pain. Someone asked me some years ago, you are, uh, have been involved in the pro-life movement for many, many years. Have you had an abortion? And I was grateful to say, no, I have not. But I recognize um, the pain that many women go through. I've been in the uh, delivery room with a couple of women who were on the verge of having abortions and decided not to do so and carried their children to term. One to adoption, another to carry that child and to keep it for herself and to raise the child. It is such a difficult uh, situation, and we would do well to be well-informed, to be ready to encourage and come alongside those who struggle, and to be mindful of the fact that there are many among us who are hurting, some who have yet to confide in anyone that they've ever had an abortion, and they've carried that pain and burden alone. And I'm grateful to say that the grace of God is sufficient to deal with even that. You don't become a second-class Uh, Christian because of your history. If that were the case, we'd all be second, third, fourth class um, Christians. We come to Christ and it's his grace and his mercy that gives us access to the throne of grace. And we come there where we are cleansed and we receive his Holy Spirit and there's a complete transformation. So if this happens to be one area that you have stumbled in, one particular area, uh, let me encourage you that God intends for you to live the fullness of Um, of salvation and life that he extends to all believers. Um, All of us have a story. All of us have a background and not one of us, regardless of the details of that story, uh, could have earned our salvation. It is Christ himself that uh, bids us to come and he bids you as well. (sighs) Again, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. In fact, next week we'll be focusing a lot of our attention 
on the subject. We'll be talking with some local ministries in this area and looking at the history of abortion in this country and where we stand today in the wake of a now overturned Roe versus Wade. Also want to remind you, coming up on Friday and Saturday, Mission Connection Northwest. Joni Militich mentioned that her ministry is going to be there. There are dozens and dozens of ministries who will have booths there so that you can learn more about opportunity to minister and serve in our community. You'll also have opportunity to hear from some great uh, workshop speakers and um, the, the main speakers for the uh, event as well. So check it out at Mission Connection, spelled with an X, dot global for all the important details. The event is free, but you do need to register ahead of time. So do make sure that you have done that. All right. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.